The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, it's an exciting January because the new AFCFTA, I think that's it, Africa Continental Free Trade Area is now up and running. And one of the big exciting parts of this is not only the fact that it's going to be easier to trade within the, the all, all the different African countries, but also because it wants to be able to bring manufacturing now into Africa from places like China and other places so that they can trade and build stuff more and add value to commodities and add value to products, which has been a long-held dream in Africa as well, not to simply export raw materials and commodities. Interesting discussion over on Twitter on this very subject by our good friend Hannah Ryder, who is the CEO of uh, Development Reimagined in Beijing. Uh, she wrote just uh, you know a couple days ago, there is already talk in China of a free trade area linking the AFCTA could be a big boost for African exports, but only helpful in long term if exports are added value. Now, she goes on to write, African countries need Chinese factories to relocate and link into global supply chains and ultimately produce for China, too. In any case, the continent with free trade areas with China needs an African-led, publicly available feasibility study of pros and cons. So she is really talking about this, and apparently in Beijing there's a lot of discussion that being said, Kobus, you and I have been doing this podcast now for 11 years. Going back to the first year that we did this podcast, I remember discussions about the Huajian Shoe Factory in Ethiopia. And all of this excitement when Huajian came to Ethiopia, that it was going to be the start of this blossoming future of, of Chinese manufacturing. It really hasn't happened that way. Let me just give you an example of where... Uh, a country like Ethiopia stands in contrast to uh, Vietnam and China when it comes to textile uh, exports. So China last year exported $253 billion worth of textiles. Here in Vietnam, where I'm located, uh, last year they exported $29 billion. These numbers come from Reuters, by the way. And in Ethiopia last year, it was $94 million. So you can see the stark discrepancy be, between what's happening here in Asia and where a country like Ethiopia is right now. So Cobus, lots of promise, but we actually haven't seen the reality materialize quite the way that some people had hoped for. Yeah, you know, I think I think that is one one reading of those numbers. I, I think the other reading is that that you know that the, is takes into account that Africa is starting from such a low base that I think from an African perspective, the that ninety four million um, exported from Ethiopia is a major achievement, considering you know kind of where how low how low African kind of manufacturing numbers were before that, and I think the fact that also that international brands like H and M and so on are, are also now manufacturing non-Chinese brands are also manufacturing in Ethiopia is another kind of major achievement for, for the 
the kind of Ethiopian manufacturing sector. That said, I completely agree with you that it's low. I mean, it's it's uh, very low, especially compared to the kind of behemoths in the in the apparel industry like Bangladesh, for example. Well, let's talk about a couple of the factors that are driving Chinese manufacturing to look for overseas locations. In part, it's because while a lot of people think that China is a very populous country, it's actually got a huge demographic problem. There are simply not enough young people, and young people work in factories. The dem- the birth rate in China has been going down for decades, and now they face a labor crunch. So the cost of labor is going up. China's trying to green its society, so there are a lot more environmental controls that are being put on factories. When I lived in Shanghai up until last year, I was hearing time and time again from factory owners that they are coming under pressure from the government to make sure that they are not polluting as much as they once used to. That too is forcing the cost of production up as well. Also, there's just China's transitioning now from a kind of an economy that makes stuff to economy that does services and high tech, much like what we see in the United States and Europe. Well, China still makes a lot of stuff. It wants to move up the value chain and away from low-end manufacturing, and so it's willingly pushing out a lot of this manufacturing. So let's find out where is it actually going, and is some of that actually going to go to Africa the way that Hannah Ryder was hoping for? And for that, we are thrilled to have on the program for the first time Professor Jia Yu, who is the director of the Department of International Development Cooperation at the Institute of New Structural Economics at Peking University in Beijing. Uh, Professor Yu studies the outsourcing of Chinese manufacturing around the world, so this is going to be a very timely discussion. A very good afternoon to you, Professor Yu. Yeah, hi, Eric. Thanks very much for the uh, introduction. Actually, regarding to the question where are Chinese companies going, according to our research, in fact, large scale of China's industrial relocation started around earlier to um, about 10 years ago. And the vast majority of relocation so far landed in Southeast Asian countries. And we analyzed a large database of outward foreign direct investment database compiled by the Chinese Ministry of Commerce and find that the top three recipients of labor-intensive investment from China to Southeast Asia are Cambodia, Vietnam, and Myanmar. And African countries are also in the picture, but the scale is far smaller. The, the top recipients in Africa are Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Egypt. Very quickly, what is prompting them to come here in Southeast Asia versus other parts of the world? Obviously, the proximity to China makes sense. It's very close. But is it only because of geography or are there other reasons that Southeast Asia is such a draw for Chinese manufacturers? Yeah, there are several reasons. For example, the first or the uh, the most important reason, of course, is wage rates in Southeast Asian countries are still uh, quite competitive vis-a-vis the wages rates in China. And the second reason is uh, favorable tariff rates enjoyed by uh, Southeast Asian countries is a key factor that will keep motivating, especially for the export-oriented firms shifting productions outside China. And for example, Vietnam, uh, it has officially signed the CPTPP in January 2019. And the heavy outlook of trade frictions between China and the U.S. would further catalyze China's manufacturing relocation abroad. Uh, yeah, so I think that is um, the main the main reason. Of course, the uh, uh, the Southeast Asia compared with the African countries is very uh, close to China, and we have similar culture. 
So it is um, yeah uh, had big uh, comparative advantage to attract the Chinese relocation. You know, obviously, this is a very broad question, but are these companies that are relocating to Southeast Asia, are they mainly manufacturing for the Chinese market and, and kind of, you know, sending sending those products back to China? Or are they, or are they concentrating on Southeast Asia or elsewhere? I think actually it is not uh, focused on Chinese market. It's just uh, take the advantage, saying like the la- uh, the lower labor cost there, and to produce in the Southeast uh, Southeast Asian countries. But the target market is global market because, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, some of Southeast Asian countries have preferential trade agreement with like uh, U.S. market or European market. So they just produce there, but export to a global market. Now, you've mentioned the labor cost twice, and I think that's very interesting because here in Uh, Vietnam, obviously, labor costs are competitive with China. Bangladesh and India also have very low labor costs. But how much of it it comes down to labor costs and how much also comes to, say, infrastructure? So you may be in a place that that has very low cost labor, but also doesn't have consistent power. The roads are not strong. The ports are not strong. The supply chain networks paint a picture for us of all the different factors that, say, a Chinese manufacturer may take into account when considering where to offshore their their, their factory. Yeah, I do agree with your point. Actually, it is also one of. Um, I I just uh, I want to mention a number first. For example, forty years ago, the GDP per capita in China was only one hundred fifty-six U.S. dollar, and at that time, uh, the GDP per capita for sub-Saharan African countries is around four hundred nineteen U.S. dollar. So forty years ago, the GDP per capita in China was less than one-third of that in uh, uh, sub-Saharan African countries. However, after 40 years, Chinese, uh, our the, the revenue already surpassed the uh, more than 10,000 US dollars. So uh, every developing country, they really want to know the secret behind China's economic miracle. And one of our successful factors actually is um, industrial park or special economic zone. Maybe this point can uh, reply your question regarding uh, the infrastructure. Because, uh, yeah, that's true for many developing countries. They do not have enough power supply. They do not have very good condition road and other facilities. But they cannot wait until everything is ready then to attract FDI. So the the value of the potential way or effective solution is uh, cre- the creation of industrial park. That means we do not need a very big uh, uh, big uh, land, only one to two kilometers square, but the government can concentrate their limited resources to the industrial park and uh, satisfy the necessary uh, power supply and the, the other facilities to attract the first movers come down settle down in the industrial park and uh, then if uh, they if they produce um, with their production uh, as soon as possible they will give a positive signal to attract 
the more a more a potential investors who are still hesitating to invest or not. So that that is also uh, the case that uh, Eric mentioned about the Huajian case in Ethiopia. It is the power of industrial park. So I think this could be one solution for uh, infrastructure uh, shortage for the developing countries. So you mentioned in your in your report that the the apparel and footwear industry has has been re- a real leader in moving offshore. Why that industry specifically and not other industries? Yeah, I think it depends uh, because of the structure of uh, the cost, production cost structure. Um, according to our uh, study uh, in our report, I actually um, when the um, the labor, for example, the clothing and footwear, uh, most specifically about 25% to 35% of clothing manufacturing and about 15% of footwear have shifted from China to other countries. So because uh, the share of labor uh, cost in their total production cost is quite high. So this kind of um, uh, firms are keen to uh, relocating from uh, from China to other uh, uh, countries, especially compared with the uh, like the household appliance sector, that is um, n- uh, not very sensible to uh, uh, relocate from China to other countries due to several uh, reasons. Uh, I I think yeah more, more in details. For example, the uh, um, first the reliance on labor is much lower, and the costs of labor as a share of total production costs are very small. According to uh, on-site interviews with business owners, uh, the labor costs account for merely seven percent to eight percent of total production costs for household uh, appliance sector. Thus, the impact of rising labor costs on the household appliance industry is quite limited. And the second reason is the uh, complexity and the length of supply chain of the household app- uh, appliance industry have made offshore relocation all the the more difficult. It is typically the case that 50% or more of the components of household appliance production are sourced externally and by hundreds of suppliers. And the third reason is the cost of establishing an appliance factory is too high to justify relocation based on labor cost advantage provided in potential recipient countries. I want to go back to what you said about the special economic zones and how They were very, very successful in China. I remember I was in, and I'm going to reveal how old I am here, uh, I was in Shenzhen back in 1992, shortly after Deng Xiaoping did the Southern Tour, and that's really sparked the growth of Shenzhen as one of the first special economic zones in China. It took off from there, and it's been really remarkable, but it's been difficult to take the Chinese model and carbon copy it and put it somewhere else, and especially in Africa, where it seems like there is a mixed track record on the success of special economic zones for all sorts of different reasons. Cobus, you and I were talking about one that had some Chinese backing in South Africa that's been mired in problems. You know, Professor Yu, what's your reading when you look at the success rate of Chinese-style special economic zones in places like Africa, but anywhere around the world, as to whether or not they're successful? Because as you rightly point out, making a small kind of isolated area where you can have good infrastructure, good regulations, everything can work in a small scale, sounds good. But if you've got, say, governance issues in that country, 
where corruption is endemic, that corruption doesn't stop at the border of the special economic zone, for example. And so I'm curious to know where, what's the level of success that we've seen in a place like Africa about Chinese-style special economic zones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, you are so lucky. You just visited Shenzhen after, yeah, around 1992. Uh, actually, yeah, to answer this question, I want to echo a little the case of Hua, the Huajian case in Ethiopia. And may I? Yes, yeah. but, but okay. again, everybody always goes back to Huajian in Ethiopia. Is that really the showcase? There's nothing more than that. There's special economic zones in Mauritius, in South Africa, and other places, Nigeria. Yeah. But is yeah, Huajian really have... the showcase that every that we keep going back to? Okay, so so I will focus on the role of, of government, the facilitating government, because according to the new structural economics, we have two core ideas. First is the effective market. That means the the way we need to uh, um, develop based on the comparative advantage of each country, and uh, more importantly, the government the government will uh, play a facilitating role uh, by issuing a series of policies. So the, the successful case of Huajian in Ethiopia, actually, um, we do not, here we do not talk about the comparative advantage in labor cost, in uh, also the preferential trade agreement when they export from Ethiopia to U.S. market. But very important here um, is the, the support from the Ethiopian government, especially the Prime Minister Meles himself, because he promised to meet directly Actually, the the Chinese investors every two months. So you can imagine, as a prime minister, he was too busy, but he 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 still promised to meet directly with the investors. So it's can uh, because usually in many African countries, the the boss, the the leaders, has a strong will to develop. However, when his will transferred from one level to the other level, the the final information will be totally uh, different. So uh. Direct communication channel is very important to enhance the investors' um, confidence. And more importantly, after the successful case of Huajian in Ethiopia, another successful case is Havasa Industrial Park. It is a true, a real tripartite corporation successful case. Uh, more in detail, this. Uh, this industrial park was established in the year 2016, and the Ethiopia government is managed and uh, owned this uh, industrial park. However, the Chinese company uh, are uh, t- um, t- is re- responsible for the uh, con- the hard infrastructure construction for this industrial park. And more importantly, we here we talk about the tripartite cooperation. We have Chinese investors, we have the host African countries, and also it is very important to have international buyers. So in this Havasa uh, industrial park, the international buyer is uh, the PVH group in the United States. So PVH just called all the suppliers um, to settle down in the Havasa Industrial Park. So when we have visited this park, we can see the uh, uh, garment suppliers, the textile suppliers from Bangladesh, from India, and from China's Taiwan, etc. And uh, 
from the very beginning of uh, the uh, the, uh, the design phase of this industrial park, uh, we have uh, the emphasis on the manufacturing uh, process, also raw materials with standard waste treatment and labor protection. So it is a very uh, a high criteria in terms of uh, environment protection and the the, the green standard etc. And uh, just the last year, because our team uh, re will be back to this industrial park uh, almost every year, and the last year uh, it already created more than 25,000 jobs, and mostly for uh, women aged between 18 to 35. So you see, it is also a positive impact of Huajian uh, case in Ethiopia. And then the Ethiopian government learned a lot from the industrial park, and so they can generate itself uh, a very good model uh, with the American uh, international, uh, American buyers, uh, Chinese, and uh, other developing countries uh, suppliers, and uh, of course produce locally and export to a U.S. market and European market. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Wits University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za. One of the issues you mentioned um, in, in the report and, and just now is uh, environmental regulation. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in many cases, I've seen the narrative that, you know, as China becomes more, more kind of worried about environmental regulation and, you know, kind of more stringent in terms of in terms of its own regulations, more of these companies will then move to less stringent countries with 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 weaker regulation. But you, you also just now mentioned, you know, that that some of these industrial parks actually have very high levels of, of environmental regulation. Um, so where, you know, kind of. To which extent will will higher will insistence in in Africa and other places on on full environmental regulation? To which extent will that push Chinese companies away, or to which extent will Chinese companies be able to adapt to these environmental standards in other countries? Yeah, I I think it is. Uh um, there are the, the current phenomenon and, the, and also the expected situation. So I will answer uh, in, um, following this two point. Actually, uh, we here we have experienced the uh, like in Chinese we say um, develop first, uh, then manage later. So we do not want to uh, copy this uh, this development model to other developing countries because we are in a different world today. So everybody want to a sustainable development. So here we do not encourage the uh, uh, from uh, we we want to learn from the lessons of Chinese old uh, development uh, path. And uh, yeah, I will, I will give an um, example. Um, because before joining uh, back the Peking University, I myself is a um, Chinese investor uh, in Africa countries. And um, I worked in a power generation and mining field. Actually, this field is <laughs> very a challenging field. And uh, one, um, it's it's a true uh, experience of myself. Uh, we will uh, build up a 
alumina refinery uh, in one of African uh, West African countries, uh, because but we need to build a thermal power plant there. So when we um, negotiate the contract with the, the government, uh, firstly we we say that we will respect the emission standards of Chinese own emission standards, and then nobody agree with us. Yeah, and then we we changed that article. We say that okay, so we will re- in terms of uh, power emission, we will respect the related uh, standards of the World Bank, and then everybody agrees. But in fact, you know the uh, the standards of the Chinese standards is more severe or strict than the World Bank standards. So, but so the first reason is at that it is a story about ten years ago. So at that moment, uh, not many Chinese companies are going uh, invest investing overseas. So people do not understand or do not know more about the Chinese old standards. So that's the first reason that. Um, Due to the uh, the no awareness of the uh, the standards, and the second is um, actually today, for example, when we uh, invest in Africa, we can see uh, take Chinese company as an example. Uh, for most mining and the primary energy project, because it's uh, to some degree the uh, the capital intensive uh, project, so many Chinese SOE invest in those field, and uh, uh, the output most aimed at Chinese own market, and the uh, the manufacturing sector, they all it is a. Small the the private Chinese companies invest in manufacturing sector, but they have little attention to the international market. So they they will generate a problem is uh, if only one company invest in this country, they can uh, they can occupy the market. They can earn a lot of money. However, when the second come, they will share the market. But when the third, when the fifth, the tenth uh, investors come, maybe everybody lost the the market. And so the desired model of investment in Africa, uh, as we suggest or, or we proposed, is about a manufacturing plus model. That means. Yeah, for the mining and the energy field, maybe because it needs a lot of capital, so the Chinese SOE will still invest in in those fields. However, in terms of energy, uh, like in many African countries, they are very rich in solar, in wind. So here we suggest to invest in renewable energy project rather than the traditional thermal power plant, and also we can.、Um, There is a lot of uh, trust, uh, uh, trust fund or green fund to、uh, apply to、uh, co-finance into this renewable energy project, and then、uh, all this kind of um, um, energy project can also supply the power to the industrial park, where a lot of private sector or the manufacturing investors. Are working on the in the industrial park, so they can not only satisfy the power supply, the other infrastructure supply, but also because for the developing countries there are two priorities: job creation and export. So. 
uh, the private sector could be uh, highly welcomed or needed by the uh, host countries. And then more, uh, more, uh, more importantly is they will not focus only on the regional, on the local or regional market, but more uh, faced to the world market. Like I mentioned before, they can enjoy the preferential trade agreement and produce locally, but then export to U.S. or European market, etc. And here we also encourage not only the Chinese investors cooperate in Africa, but also we welcome the uh, the domestic investors together with international investors to to work together. So here we do not encourage the government borrow money at a government level, but it's very important to create a business model among all the partners, because uh, only if all the partners can can could be profitable, that means this business model could be a sustainable business model. So that is uh, the full picture of our uh, suggestion when the, the companies investing in Africa. One of the issues that you raise in your report is um, is that, you know, way like labor costs doesn't only isn't only um, restricted to wages, you know, that there are other labor costs as well, including, you know, um, including social security and, you know, kind of other other kind of forms of, of, of payment that is increasing rapidly in China. Um, you know, one of one of the big one of the big differences I think between between Africa and China, and then maybe also some some African countries and some Southeast Asian countries, is that in many um, African countries there's quite high levels of of labor unionization, and the labor unions. You know, I'm speaking you know from South Africa where the labor unions are very powerful. Um, how do you, how are Chinese business owners deal Dealing with these differences in in kind of labor, you know, kind of labor conditions um, in in China, Southeast Asia, and Africa. That's true. According to our study, especially interviews with many uh, investors in Africa, actually the labor union is one of their biggest uh, concern. Um, actually, we think yeah. Here, uh, there are several concerns uh, apart from the uh, uh, the labor union. The first is a cultural gap between operating at home, I mean, in China and abroad, and this relates to both the lives of uh, ex uh, expatriate managers outside the workplace, as well as communication with local employees for effective human resource management. And the two government firms which have been operating uh, factories in Southeast Asia expressed uh, concerns about the uh, diligence and the discipline of local workers and about the strength of the labor unions. Um, a second concern was policy risk in host countries, in particular the lack of protection of foreign investors' property rights and uh, unpredictable changes in policies. And uh, yeah, also managers expressed uh, concerns certainly about the uh, sparseness of firms within supply chains in potential host countries, as well as auxiliary infrastructure and service suppliers. They acknowledged the difficulties of transferring entire supply chain from China, but the scarcity of industrial clusters, especially in Africa, places a major burden on firms, especially early movers. Um, 
So uh, the financial regulation and the volatile exchange rates were a false point raised, seen to be uh, exacerbated by perceived limited access to domestic finance in host countries, especially for foreign firms. So that are the main challenges facing by the Chinese investors. And I agree that labor union is uh, because in China we do not have similar uh, culture, but uh, I I think every uh, companies has their own management tool or method. For example, uh, um, in uh, in our project in Benin, we have suggested that the in the special economic zone actually uh, the we will allow. We will, of of course, respect the uh, the labor um the the labor rights in the zone. However, they can well, the labor or well, they cannot have strike uh or immediate uh, have um uh, how to say they uh, we have some special method to control this um the negative impact of the uh, the labor union but uh, the principle is we will respect the uh, the local law of uh, each country interesting i'd like to close and start to wrap up our discussion by bringing up a point that was raised in a discussion we had last year with our, our good friend Cheng Cheng, who then was the chief economist for the Made in Africa initiative. And one of the things that he was focusing on in his research, that the outsourcing trend from China is a little bit overhyped, in part because automation, big data, machine learning is now actually coming into the Chinese manufacturing process. And the need for lots of labor is actually going down because of automation. And that Chinese factories are now becoming... Uh, far more sophisticated. So the idea is that they have fewer people, they may have more expensive labor in China, but they don't need as many people. So the need to necessarily outsource to a place like Ethiopia just isn't there the way it was, say, 20 years ago. And this in many ways challenges the narrative that has been in the development community that the pathway to becoming a middle-income country, like what we're experiencing here in Vietnam, is you go from agrarian to light industry to textiles and you move your way up the value chain. But automation may actually disrupt that. And I'm wondering what you are seeing in your research in terms of the factories in Guangdong province, in Dongguan, these areas in southern China, which is the heart of Chinese manufacturing, and how much they're using artificial intelligence, robotics, and other ways of circumventing the labor issues that have prompted in the past companies to go overseas. Yeah, indeed. Our institute conducted a field research in 2017 covering uh, 640 labor-intensive manufacturing firms in uh, Pearl River Delta and Yangtze River Delta regions. And we asked managers to identify the most pressing uh, challenges the firm face and how they have responded to these challenges. The data we collected suggests that the most pressing challenge firms face is uh, rising labor cost. And the most popular strategy to cope with rising labor cost is technology upgrading and the adoption of automation technologies. 
thus, it is clear that the advancement in automation technologies will reduce firms' appetite to move abroad to some extent. Uh, however, I think it, it still depends on the production cost structure. For example, the household appliance sector, as I uh, explained uh, earlier, that they um, they will it is very uh, uh, easy or very um, um, it's appropriate for the household appliance sector to use uh, automation to replace to some degree uh, the labor. However, um, uh, the impacts on clothing and footwear industries are still quite limited. And this is especially true if cost-benefit analysis is taken into account. Uh, that means it may not be economical even if certain production stages or tasks can be automated by machines or robots. Based on in-depth interviews with business owners, the use of machinery or automation technologies in clothing and footwear production is not meant to replace workers, but to equip them with better tools such that labor productivity and product quality can be improved. And even if the installment of machinery could reduce a certain number of workers, this is more of like side effect rather than a preset goal. And moreover, according to the projections of business owners, uh, the vision of having apparel or footwear production fully or largely automated is not yet in sight, and most probably will not be in decades. Uh, yeah, take apparel sector as an example. Um, one reason is this has to do with the nature of the fabric itself, which uh, like uh, stretches, warps, and uh, folds. It needs to be accurately aligned before they were they are sold. And some something workers can easily and aptly accommodate, but sewing robots cannot. And the second reason is the increasing demand for greater varieties in design and style in clothing and footwear will require more nimble human hands in production, deeming the prospects of large-scale production automation in these industries. So I think even cost factor is not the only reason for Chinese companies to invest abroad. As mentioned earlier, access to a broader international market development impact will be also important. So Chinese companies, especially uh, garment and footwear sector, will continue to invest abroad, not by the automation technology. If you could advise African countries or African governments on, on the kind of reforms they should implement to draw more uh, more attention from, from um, Chinese companies that are interested in offshoring um, and to pull more of them to Africa, what kinds of basic reforms would you suggest to them? Uh, I think the first is the, uh, the, the the governance, yeah, because it's very important to, like I said, uh, facilitating government is uh, very key to guaranteeing the uh, the the Chinese investment successful in the host country, and second is the policy. Um, uh, guaranteeing they have a stable uh, incentive policy, not change uh, with every government. And uh, uh, another issue very important is a cluster 
Yeah, it's in terms of cost calculation because money, especially for the first movers, when they, for example, when the, the first time when Huajian invested in Ethiopia, even all the auxiliary equipment they need to import from uh, Chinese market or Indian market, even for the leather, um, Ethiopia is very rich in, in leather. However, the leather treatment ability in Ethiopia at earlier ages are very, is very very poor, so they still need to import from other countries. Um, so it is very uh, important to guarantee the 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 full um, cluster settled down in the zoo. However, we need time. For example, I talked with the boss of Huajian. He told me that the first year, in terms of productivity, uh, one Chinese worker equal to three Ethiopian worker, and also the although they uh, they have uh, exported their shoes from Ethiopia to uh, United States, the shoe target for uh, like the Walmart supermarket with a low very low price is around five U.S. dollar. But today, after six seven years later. Today, the productivity is like one Chinese worker equal to 1.2 Ethiopia worker. And the shoes could be uh, produced uh, locally. Uh, they can use uh, the uh, the local leather to make the Made in Ethiopia shoes and export to uh, the United States. Around the, the price is around uh, 100 US dollar, US dollar. And like the brand, like uh, Guess, is a middle uh, luxury uh, brand already uh, yeah so I think we need time and um, but uh, especially for the very beginning the government should play a facilitating role to orient the, um, uh, uh, by issuing a series of incentive policies and the uh, the, the self-involvement in the projects especially uh, like I mentioned before like Mayless, uh create a direct communication channel with uh, the Chinese investors. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, this is going to be a very prominent topic in 2021, especially with the FOCAC summit coming up uh, sometime this year in Dakar, and trade is going to be a part of it now with the AFCFTA also in effect. Also, don't forget that there's the RCEP agreement. We didn't have time to talk about that. That's the new regional comprehensive economic partnership here in Asia. That will facilitate more trade within the Asia-Pacific region. Again, this this trade movement and the outsourcing is very much in flux. Automation is another part of this discussion. Professor Zhao Yu is following it all from the Institute of New Structural Economics at Peking University in Beijing. Uh, she's the director of the Department of International Development Cooperation, and we're very happy to have had the chance to have, share some of your insights on this fascinating topic on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Kobus, I don't have a good read right now as to how competitive Africa actually is in this space to attract more of the outsourcing of Chinese manufacturing. Clearly, it's happening, as Professor Yu noted. But I think, again, most of it seems to be coming to here in Southeast Asia and to some extent in points into South Asia as well, even though India and China have problems. There is a lot of collaboration, for example, among you know tech manufacturers like Xiaomi, for example, manufacturers, and Transin as well, manufacturers in India. I just don't see the flows going to Africa in anywhere near the same volumes. And this is something you and I have been following for more than a decade now. And you know, five, six, seven years ago, uh, I was at uh, 
at Wits University, and we met Ross Anthony, who back then was the head of the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. And this was six years ago. And he said, you know, everybody focuses on the Huajian Shoe Factory. That is the only one, and that's the best case study. And so I, here we are again with Professor Yu talking about Huajian, which is very exciting, and I think her insights are absolutely fascinating. It's nice to get that firsthand perspective of what she was talking about. But I don't have a good read yet as to whether or not these special economic zones elsewhere on the continent are actually as effective. And it just makes me suspicious that nobody wants to talk about what's going on in Nigeria, in Mauritius, in all the other places where there are SEZs. Again, I don't come to this with any bias of any kind. I just don't know what's going on because nobody really seems to be using them as case studies to talk about. So it makes me a little bit suspicious that they're not performing anywhere near as well as what we're seeing in Ethiopia. I mean... I mean, if if that was so, if if that is so, then 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 that would be be an interesting finding, right? Um, and then there would probably be you know kind of things that one could learn from the Ethiopian experience. My feeling is that it might have a lot to do with research logistics. You know that it's that it might well be that the the authorities in Ethiopia are just more more kind of welcoming to researchers um, than than in some of the other ones. Um, so you know, so so one we should never underestimate. Like, like the the kind of impact of these kind of logistical issues on on what kind of research gets done because you know kind of if if researchers aren't allowed in then they're not allowed in they can't do they can't do their work. Um, my my feeling in more in, in more general terms um, in in the report. Um, Professor Yu points out that they expect um, the the kind of strong flow to Southeast Asia to continue, you know, until about mid-decade, and that the that the real increases that they project for Africa is only going to be in the second half of this decade, which I think kind of makes sense, you know, like if like like at, at the beginning we we talked about how you know kind of the Ethiopia compared to Bangladesh and Vietnam, Ethiopia is still extremely low. But at the same time, compared to the rest of Africa, Ethiopia is a superstar. You know, so so I, my my feeling is it might increase exponentially as more and more African governments kind of jump onto onto this kind of bandwagon. Um, the issue is, I think, is all of the structural like challenges in, in Africa, including um, infrastructure and particularly electricity. And you forgot regulatory governance is going to be a key yes. question here because she she brought that up as well that almost as important as infrastructure is going to be governance. And that is in some ways a big concern. I remember that when we spoke with Chung Chung, he, one of the things that he mentioned was that Chinese companies were getting squeezed in Ethiopia by uh, different, you know, different stakeholders in the government. And here in Vietnam, one of the, the complaints that foreign companies has is that they're taxed at much higher levels than domestic companies, where there are subsidies and preferences and whatnot. So I can see that governance question making it more difficult to attract Chinese investment. But again, I'm going to bring up the issue brought up with Professor Yu here, which is this idea of automation and the speed with which the Chinese are introducing artificial intelligence into their manufacturing processes is Absolutely eye-watering. Uh, last year, I spoke with a, 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 a very senior official at a um, shoe manufacturing company, a shoe brand here in Vietnam, and he was saying, boy, they are working as hard as possible to automate big chunks of their production process. And so in the next five to 10 years, the, the, the growth and the leaps and bounds that are going to be made in artificial intelligence enhanced manufacturing are going to be enormous. And it makes me suspicious as to whether or not Africa may be coming to this party just a little bit too late. 
Sure, it may get some of the low-hanging fruit of textile and apparel and shoes. Those still, as, as Professor you noted, still require fingers to put things together. But Nike, Adidas, ASIC, they're all working very hard to reduce the human aspect of this, to lower their costs and increase their output. So it, it's, again, we don't know. It's a crystal ball, but it is a race against time. It's a very, very, it's a big race against time. And this brings up this question of infrastructure building for today so that tomorrow they are ready to take on those factories and have the power, the roads, the ports, the supply chains and everything like that. But I am, I'm nervous about the future in manufacturing nervous in Africa. Yeah, I think um you know, I think one of the challenges here is to is to kind of disentangle what whatever kind of African policymakers is uh, you know what they what they're planning compared to our received ideas of how development works. Um and you know there one needs one needs a lot more kind of a lot more input from African policymakers about exactly how they plan to overcome some of these challenges. Because keep in mind that you know that some African countries like like South Africa for example already has has relatively high levels of automation. Um also that you know the point that she made that automation doesn't necessarily always replace workers. You know that that automation might be used in other ways in, in the in the production process rather than simply to reduce the number of workers um, and that so I think I think there, there's there's th this is true I think both for the, on the labor side and the environmental side we have certain kind of preconceived ideas about how how this transfer would work including that it would move simply from fr from places with higher labor costs to lower labor costs and places with high environmental regulation to low environmental regulation but she as she's already pointed out that that that's not even even true in the case of Africa, you know, kind of it's it's we're already seeing that that new ideas about what environmental regulation should be and and what kind of how environmental regulation and development overlap, they, they've already changed. They've already changed in the last few years, and that and those changes are already being implemented in Africa. So so it might be that that what what we need to do is to update our ideas of how development works rather than particularly kind of like you know trying to to make Africa to shoehorn Africa into these kind of old models. Well, this is going to be very high on the agenda this year. We've mentioned that a couple times in part because we heard it from Hang Wei Li, who is a scholar at the University of London in our year ahead look, our 2021 show that we broadcast earlier this year and back in January. And it, it, where she pointed out that 90% of the Chinese companies in Africa are in the private sector. And this type of offshoring is all going to be, for the most part, from the private sector. And so we're going to see a lot more private sector engagement in Africa because the state sector in some ways may start to slow down as the financing kind of diversifies and goes more along the Belt and Road. And we've seen indications that there's going to be less access to capital. So this offshoring and manufacturing in the private sector is probably going to be one of the hot topics at FOCAC and also one of the growth areas in the broader China-Africa relationship. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, listen, if you want to reach out to Cobus and I, it's super easy. You can reach me at eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com. You can find Cobus at C-O-B-U-S at chinaafricaproject.com. Also, if you want to join our growing community of readers of our daily email newsletter, it's super easy to subscribe. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. It starts at $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. If you love this kind of topic, if you are a development policy nerd like us, then you're going to love, absolutely love our newsletter because we do a deep dive 
every single day on these very issues. And we're looking more and more at what's happening in Asia, China, the Americas, as our discussion today kind of unfolded where it wasn't really just about Africa. It's about how Africa interfaces with Asia and competes against other parts of the world as well. So that's what we're focusing on in the newsletters. So for Cobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, thanks for listening to the China in Africa podcast. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.